You're listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden the awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. In this episode, Dr. Robin Bride and Dr. Bradley Lander will be interviewing each presenting author of the selected abstracts to tell us more about their HCM research. These abstract presentations were selected to encore at the 2023 HCMS Scientific Sessions on October 6. Join us as three brilliant minds unravel the latest breakthroughs within HCM studies. This episode is your gateway to cutting-edge research. Stay tuned for a journey through innovation and discovery in the world of healthcare. Let's get in the thick of it. Dr. Robin Bride had the pleasure of speaking with our first presenter, Dr. Said Al-Sadai, who is a Senior Associate Consultant at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. He's joining us today to talk about his presentation on risk factors associated with ICD discharges in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So Dr. Alsawadi, thank you so much for being here today. It's very exciting work that you are presenting, of course, very important with the patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And one of the biggest things that clinicians struggle with is really risk stratification for who needs an ICD for sudden cardiac death prevention. So very important that we do this appropriately and continue to grow our knowledge base on this forefront. So I will hand it over to you. Tell us a little bit about this study. Thank you, Robin. Thanks for having me again. So just going to summarize the study for you. The goal of the study was to assess how do patients do after they get an ICD, either for secondary or primary prevention uh, for a sudden cardiac death in patients who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So we, we took our database here at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, and then what we did is we analyzed the data over a period of time to look at patients who have an ICD and uh, had an MRI so we can get their uh, late gadolinium enhancement data at the same time. And then we broke down the data by the current indication in the ACCAHA guidelines for secondary and primary prevention for sudden cardiac death. We wanted to see how each factor play a role and then how when we interact these factors together, mainly the LGE with each of the primary prevention factor, how does that synergistic effect play a role in the risk stratification? Uh, so overall, we had 134 patients in our database. These are patients who have an ICD and have a cardiac MRI done within a year before receiving their uh, ICD. In 114 of these patients, we had uh, clear LGE data, and we had one of our MRI readers go back and quantify all the LGEs on these MRIs. And then we followed this patient longitudinally and saw and looked at who received an ICD discharge appropriately, whether for sustained ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. We defined that as a sudden cardiac death event or an aborted sudden cardiac death event. What we did is a univariate analysis as well as a bivariate Cox regression analysis to study the interaction between each factor and delayed gadolinium enhancement. Now, I need to point out that this is a relatively smaller study where we're doing a larger study on a larger scale now that include all the Mayo Clinic sites. But we wanted to just present this as the early signal from this study that we were able to see. So first thing we saw in our results that patients who received an ICD for secondary prevention had a significantly increased hazard ratio of receiving a shock. That was eight times higher than patients who received it for primary prevention. So that's clearly a class one recommendation in the guidelines and appropriately so based on what we found in our study. Now, when we looked at the primary prevention uh, 
reasons to receive an ICD, including unexplained syncope, family history of sudden death, septal thickness of over 30 millimeter, um, in addition to uh, apical aneurysm. Now, all our patients had an EF over 50%, so we didn't use that as a factor. In addition to non-sustained ventricular tachycardia on an ambulatory monitor. None of these by themselves, when we looked at them by themselves, increased the hazard ratio of receiving a shock. There was a slight increase in patients who received the ICD for non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, and we were very strict in selecting these patients. So these are patients who at least had three episodes over 24 hours of non-sustained VT, of at least, at least 10 beats of over 200 beats per minute. So we're very selective. So these were a higher risk population. The on, that's the only one that had a hazard ratio of two but all the other factors didn't play a role. When we used also LGE by itself as a factor for, uh, or as a, as a you know, predictor of receiving ICD shock, that also by itself did not predict or did not increase the hazard ratio of receiving a shock. Now, most interestingly is when we looked at the interaction between these risk factors. So when we, we did a bivariate uh, Cox regression analysis and looked at each factor, how does it interact with LGE? We found a significant synergistic interaction. So patients who had syncope and had LGE over 10% had five times higher the chance of receiving an ICD shock. Patient with an apical aneurysm had around 4.6 times higher the chance of receiving an ICD shock as compared to people who had a, an, an LGE less than 10%. So we found that when we add LGE on top of already existing primary risk factors, that's when the, the risk of uh, sudden death or the risk of ICD discharge went up. Unfortunately, we couldn't analyze data on family history because we didn't have a single patient with a family history who had an LG over 10%. And septal thickness was also difficult to analyze because most patients with this massive LVH had significant amount of LGE. So these two factors were hard to analyze there. So the two factors that played a role in our study were syncope plus LGE and apical pouch plus LGE. So that's, that's kind of, you know, to summarize the finding of our study, that it's the interaction between the factor and not each factor as it is, or in and of itself was a predictor of risk of sudden death uh, in this population. Well, I think that this is a great study and really nice of your team to point out the fact of the association with LGE with these other two risk factors, with the history of syncope and with the apical aneurysm. And of course, the guidelines, they do point out greater than or equal to one of these risk factors, one of all of the risk factors you have mentioned. Correct. But LGE by itself of course, the the indicator there would be LGE greater than or equal to 15%. So I think it was nice that you reduced that and said, well, maybe we don't need to say that it's 15% so as severe on its own to qualify for the ICD, but let's reduce that and let's see if there's a signal. And I think for the clinician, we can walk away from this and say, well, we can't ignore this. There's still scar there, which can be uh, a substrate for arrhythmic potential. And when we see that in combination with syncope and the aneurysm, that the clinician should take note and and consider placing the ICD. So I think that this is fantastic. And as your team continues to follow this out through the tri sites and continue to analyze this data. Um, it'll be exciting to see what associations you find. 
Of course, I know we're not saying that the the syncope alone or family history of sudden cardiac death or massive left ventricular hypertrophy by themselves don't warrant the ICD because you didn't find the signal. But as you mentioned, it just the study wasn't powered for that. So so hopefully over time, we'll be able to find some more uh, information with this. And I think that it's fantastic work that you are doing with your group. Um, Any final take home points that we should walk away with this? Absolutely. I think, you know, the final take home point is, you know, I think that the clinician, when we see this patient in clinic, we should use all the factors or all the data available to us when we make these difficult decisions. A lot of time we hear from the patient, I have a family history, like my father had a sudden death at the age of, you know, let's say 55, and it was unknown. Can I use this as a factor or not? Is it by itself a reason to put an ICD? So adding the imaging data on top of that. So looking at, you know, doing an MRI, looking at their LGE data. So looking at multiple factors rather than just one factor to place an ICD is probably the right way to go. Our guidelines currently separate them as class 2A and class 2B. Probably a better way to do it is that's what we're proposing. Can we put these factors together and come up with a new classification where we interact these factors together so we come with a better classification of who's who's really at higher risk of sudden death and who should receive an ICD? Perfect. Perfect. Well, agree completely. So you guys are definitely on the forefront and helping us continue to risk stratify these patients as best we can. Thank you so much for your time today. And we look forward to hearing from you in the future on what your study has found as you follow up a few years down the road. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Dr. Robin Bride also had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Stuart Campbell, who is an associate professor of medicine at Yale University. His abstract presentation covers inherited cardiomyopathy and what happens when you send a patient for genetic testing and the panel returns back not with no mutation, but with a gene associated with cardiomyopathy. Well, perfect. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for joining in today. Um, You, again, are one of our abstract presenters at the HCMS meeting in Cleveland this year. And so this is an opportunity for our uh, listeners who are listening in virtually to hear about your abstracts. So um, I will let you take it away and give us an overview of what you presented. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's really exciting to be associated with this meeting and to be able to share our work. So as you mentioned, we have a longstanding interest in inherited cardiomyopathies. And as we've interacted with clinicians over the years, we've become familiar with the challenge of variants of unknown significance, right? Where um, you send a patient for genetic testing, the panel comes back, not with a known mutation, but one that um, is in a gene that's associated with cardiomyopathy, but not necessarily a variant that's been seen before. This is a challenge if you want to be able to go on and screen the rest of the family members and determine who might be at risk on that uh, on the basis of genetics. So if we go to clinical databases on variants such as ClinVar, you can see that um, these different variants can be classified as known pathogenic, likely pathogenic, benign, et cetera. And then you, you've got, of course, that variant of unknown significance or VUS category. So as we sort of have um, gone along in our research in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we became interested in seeing if we could contribute to the resolution of of some of these unknowns, see if we can turn unknowns into knowns. And we have a variety of different techniques that we've used that range from computational studies, models of how 
these proteins behave and, and how that can be translated into predictions of physiology. In this particular abstract, I wanted to emphasize um, an in vitro method that we've been working on over the years. So in this case, we can generate human engineered heart tissue or EHTs from induced pluripotent stem cells. And then we can precisely measure the contractile behavior of those tissues. So our hypothesis was that if we could introduce variants of unknown significance into these tissues, we might be able to observe contractile behavior that could be associated with pathogenicity. We chose, in this case, um, the gene TPM1 that encodes cardiac tropomyosin. So obviously a, an important regulatory protein in the cardiac sarcomere and has plenty of mutations that have been positively linked, uh, definitively linked with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and also dilated cardiomyopathy. And then we um, selected four variants of unknown significance along with a couple that, that are um, associated already with HCM and DCM to serve as kind of a benchmark. And we engineered these variants into a, a viral vector, which we could then introduce to the human EHTs and follow changes in function. So at, at the end of the day, measuring function in these tissues that were transduced with uh, variants of unknown significance, we were able to observe significant changes in the strength of contraction and the duration of contraction that matched sort of lined up either with our HCM control um, known mutation or our DCM known mutation and allowed us to sort of uh, to classify these as being um, similar to one or the other. And, um, you know, we sort of concluded that if you can take a, a variant of unknown significance and benchmark it against one of these cases, that we might be able to draw some conclusions about the pathogenicity of those variants. Yeah, I think that it's it's fascinating how you have introduced, like you said, this vector into the myocyte, and then you're able to study the hypercontractility. And I think what you your results did show that one of the VUSs associated with the TPM1 gene actually did result in hypercontractile human engineered heart tissue. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so, why did you choose the TPM1 gene? Yeah, that, that's a great question. This really has its roots in our multi-scale modeling efforts where we wanted to just begin with the protein structure and maybe how a, an amino acid substitution, a point variant, might change that structure and those dynamics and then scale that up to, to physiological function. And that's obviously very challenging to do in a computer model or a series of models. So we decided to start with low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. As you um, probably know, TPM1 is not a huge piece of the HCM pie, right? It's, um, you know, just a few percent in terms of patients that are coming into clinic with TPM1 mutations. However, the structure of that protein is relatively simple. It's arguably the simplest among the sarcomeric proteins. And so we, we reasoned that this might be a good place to start to prove the concept that we could you know, make computational evaluations potentially of the pathogenicity of different variants. So okay. we prove that just because it's sort of a good entry point. Sure, sure. Um, and with the TPM1 gene, are there pathogenic variants associated with it in addition to the variants of unknown significance? Yeah, absolutely. There's a well-established literature in patient families 
for both hypertrophic and dilated cardiomyopathy. And so that allowed us to choose from among um, several sort of benchmark mutations that we could, we could say, you know, this mutation has been shown through, um, you know, patient data linkage analysis to cause hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or dilated cardiomyopathy. And right. that way we could, we could sort of have more confidence that um, it would function as a benchmark in either case. Sure, sure. That makes uh, perfect sense. So the I think that your work is is very fascinating and it's exciting because there's seems to be some unknown about how a gene is transitioned from a VUS to a pathogenic variant. In clinic, we oftentimes do send our patients to do the genetic testing. And oftentimes the results come back as a VUS. And we do counsel patients that these are continuing to be monitored through the companies that collect this data. And when they notice an increased signal that sometimes a VUS will be transitioned over to a pathogenic variant. And of course, the office would be notified and then it would be our role to reach out to the patient. So tell me, how do you feel like your work can contribute to transitioning over from a VUS to a pathogenic variant? Because I, I can definitely see that there could be a role for understanding this, this clinical work that you're performing into transitioning a VUS to a pathogenic variant. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad that you brought this up because this is really the core of what we want to do. Uh, we, we see this as where we hopefully can make a real impact. At the same time, we have to temper that with um, the, the need to be cautious, you know, the, the need to be really thorough in the way that we do things. So I view this as sort of an, an ongoing conversation that's got to take place between um, scientists like myself, clinicians like you, um, genetic testing companies. We, we've got to sort of collaborate together in a consortium type way to uh to make steps forward. So I, I, I want to see this move forward and to be done correctly. So I think our role is sort of falls into two categories. First, we have been making um, induced pluripotent stem cell lines from specific cardiomyopathy patients. We've also been using other uh, techniques such as CRISPR-Cas9 to engineer um, known patient mutations into, into these IPS lines. And then studying the behavior of those tissues and seeing, in fact, this pattern of hypercontractility in our HCM patients. So we see that over and over again. We feel that that's a pretty strong signal, and we feel like we understand a good deal of the biology. I certainly wouldn't say all, but a lot of the biology that underlies um, those responses. And so um, having observed those really repeatable um, physiological responses to HCM-linked mutations. We are now trying to associate that with these variants of unknown significance and saying, look, if, if this um, increase in contractility or this prolongation of the contraction is associated with, with known HCM patients, then you know, can we build a bridge to evaluating these, these unknown mutations? We'll obviously take those results and publish them. Those will go into the scientific literature, be peer-reviewed and so forth. Um, we'll continue to generate conversations by going to conferences. And we hope that over time, this can you know, really challenge the field to say, is this a, a functional biomarker that we believe in that, that could be used for making these critical, you know, cl and, yeah, critical clinical decisions or not? And so that, that's kind of how I see our role and how I hope it will unfold in the future. Absolutely. 
Well, it certainly is a very exciting time, and your lab is on the forefront of this cutting-edge research, and and it's exciting to see what will come with it. Uh, Of course, we'll, like you said, track it over time, get the data out there, work in collaboration with the companies that are collecting all of the genetic data, and we'll see what happens with this. But um, definitely, thank you so much for all your work in this. And I'm sure your lab has contributed greatly. And this is knowledge that uh, we are very grateful for. So exciting to hear you talk about this and look forward to seeing you in person at the meeting. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Bradley Lander interviews Dr. Anjali Owens from the University of Pennsylvania. Her abstract presentation covers the study in patients with symptomatic non-obstructive HCM in the parent study, the Maverick HCM child. Looking at symptomatic non-obstructive HCM patients who were treated with either Mavacamptin, a novel cardiac myosin inhibitor, versus placebo, and a long-term extension study that's open-label called NOVA-LT. Hi, Dr. Owens. How are you? Hi, I'm fine, Dr. Lander, and thank you so much for the invitation to speak today. Of course. Well, congratulations on your work. Maybe you can tell our audience a little bit of background um, leading into your current study. Absolutely. So this study is done in patients with symptomatic, non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And the parent study was the Maverick HCM trial that was published a couple of years ago looking at symptomatic non-obstructive HCM patients who were treated with either Mavicamptin, a novel cardiac myosin inhibitor, versus placebo. And this trial is the long-term extension study that's open label called MAVA-LTE. And I will be presenting the 120-week long-term extension data. That's great. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, what this study involved and what you found and will be presenting. So these were patients who were involved in the parent study, Maverick HCM, and opted to continue in the long-term extension. In that long-term extension, all of the patients were treated with Mavicamptin, and they were split into two groups based on a target drug concentration. So there was a low concentration and a higher concentration. And we watch patients in terms of how they felt, what their New York Heart Association functional class was, what their biomarkers were in terms of troponin and NT-proBNP, as well as echo parameters, looking at ejection fraction, measures of diastolic function, left atrial size. And of course, importantly, we looked for safety outcomes, adverse events, drop in ejection fraction, which we know can occur with this class of medication. And one of the interesting findings was that the drop in ejection fraction, I believe less than 50%, was seen in around a quarter of the patients. Was this expected, unexpected? How did your study team um, consider that, that finding? I think it's an interesting finding and one that is notable. And again, this is the longest term study of patients with non obstructive HCM being treated with a cardiac myosin inhibitor. The rest of our data come from patients with obstructive HCM. And of course, that's the Explorer study, the Valor HCM study, and the long-term extension of those studies. Um, And in those populations with obstruction, 
the transient drop in ejection fraction has been observed to be much lower than what was seen in this study. And I think there's a couple of reasons why that might be. One is that this study was a dose-finding study. So as I mentioned, there were two target concentrations, and that is what the goal was, to get the drug to that concentration. There was a higher level and a lower level concentration, and most of the drops in EF, about 66% of them, occurred in the higher concentration group, as opposed to the obstructed group, where we were not targeting um, concentration, for example, in the Valor HCM study, but rather we were dosing the drug based on echo findings. And in the obstructive population, importantly, we have the biomarker of the LVOT gradient, and we can titrate the drug to response of the gradient as well as EF. And I think what it tells us and what the Maverick study told us in the long-term extension is how to design and inform the design of the phase three study Odyssey HCM. So this was very important dose finding study that informed how we're going to dose the drug um, in the Odyssey study. The other thing that I think is important is that the non-obstructive population is not the same. They're a more heterogeneous population and they're on a spectrum or continuum of disease. And it's probable that the cardiac myosin inhibitors um, aren't the best choice for all comers with non-obstructive HCM. Um, what, we'll, what we may find is that there is a subset of patients who benefit, and maybe there's a subset of patients who don't. And I think the phase three trials will hopefully tell us that information. That's fantastic. It is a really interesting finding. And are there other trials of um, non-obstructive HCM that are happening? And how, how do you expect what, you're, what you found currently to impact um, future trials and, and future care of patients? Yeah, so definitely it's it's a, a hot time to be a patient with non-obstructive HCM and to be a cardiologist who treats those patients. So there are many trials that are in development or actively enrolling. The two big phase three randomized control trials for cardiac myosin inhibitors. Um, the first is the Odyssey HCM trial. And as I mentioned, that's going to be Mavicamptin versus placebo in symptomatic non-obstructive HCM. And the next generation cardiac myosin inhibitor, Afficamptin, um, also has a phase three trial ongoing. That's the Acacia HCM trial that will be for symptomatic non-obstructive HCM. In addition, we are seeing first in human gene therapy trials, very exciting for patients with symptomatic non-obstructive HCM. Um, and then I think down the pike, we're also going to see other agents like SGLT2 inhibitors, et cetera, being trialed in non-obstructive HCM, as well as drugs that affect energetics, an ongoing phase two trial, and we'll see if it turns into a phase three. So again, there are a lot of options now for a patient population that traditionally had no options. So um, we're hopeful that we'll find out which drug benefits which patient at which time in their disease course. And I think it's on us as cardiologists to do that background work now understand where patients are in the phase of their disease so we know what they're poised to benefit from. That's a fantastic overview and I agree completely. It's an exciting time to be a physician in this space and it's probably the best time so far to be a patient with the condition if you have to have the condition. So thank you so much for joining us and congratulations again on your work. Thanks again. 
Thank you to all our guests for sharing their valuable research with us today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of In the Thick of It. For more information on this study, please click the slides in the show notes or visit hcmsociety.org slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.